Genesis 49. Let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for uh, your goodness. We thank you that you have shown who you are in the pages of Scripture. We ask that uh, through your Spirit we would be uh, ready and able to hear what you would have to teach us today. Give us softened hearts and opened eyes uh, to be able to see what you would have us learn. Thank you for these stories that uh, teach us and show us the the foundation that we stand on and show us the purpose of your uh, purpose of your work that uh, you you have planned from the very beginning that you were going to send your son Jesus to give himself for uh, a ransom for man. Just pray this in his name. Amen. Like I said, turn to Genesis chapter 49. We're nearing the end of the book of Genesis now. Uh, I said last week that the beginning of chapter 48 is really, uh, in a lot of ways, the beginning of the conclusion of the book of Genesis. Uh, things that are things that are happening in in these last three chapters are really uh, as as much as this particular book comes to a close, uh, or, or or as much as the ideas that are being uh, taught to us in this book um, are coming to a close. We we basically what I'm what I'm what am I trying to say here? What what I mean by that is that in in the book of Genesis, there's there's not really a hard and fast ending. Uh, because our author, probably Moses, knew that he was going to continue writing. So he kind of softly comes to a close in the book of Genesis, but at the same time he's bringing some ideas that he has been stringing along to a close, and that's what we're going to see today and even a little bit next week uh, as, as we come to a conclusion in the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis 49, or at least the first 27 verses of Genesis 49, is the, the blessing that Jacob gives to his to his 12 sons. We talked last week about the blessing that he gives uh, through Joseph to Ephraim and to Manasseh. And we talked about how that was, in a lot of ways, symbolic of Joseph receiving the birthright or a double portion of this blessing. And I say symbolic because I don't, I don't think that Jacob is is trying to come out and make big, a big show of things. I think he's rather, I think more along the lines of this is, this is more for the benefit of those coming down the road and for us even. Uh, but today we, we almost have a, a, a chapter unto itself. Yes, there's some connections to what's going on in the book as a whole, uh, but largely what we're seeing here is contained within itself. It's contained within the verses uh, within the first 27 verses here. The blessing that is passed down is, is obviously the blessing of the 12 sons, but it's very unevenly divided. So there's 26 verses that are dedicated to the poem that is the blessing of the 12 sons. Ten of those verses are dedicated to Judah and to Joseph. And, and if you look at the word count within, the, within these verses, actually Judah and Joseph receive about half of the total length of 
the blessing. And so what we see in this is that Judah and Joseph are really the point. They're really kind of the reason why this is even happening. Yes, all 12 sons will receive uh, something from their father. Uh, Maybe the first three brothers will receive somewhat of a curse, but we'll talk about that in a second. But all of them are going to be talked about. All of them are going to receive something. But Joseph and Judah receive something particular, something special. And so what, what ends up happening is that this kind of gets divided into two parts. We'll look at this first part, which is kind of Judah's part, and then we'll look at the second part, which is kind of Joseph's part. So let's look at Genesis 49, verse 1. It says, And then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Before I, before I finish this, this section, what, what Jacob is essentially doing here is he, is he is expanding this possession of blessing. Last week we talked about how a blessing in the ancient mind was, was much more tangible, something that they, they carried with them. Abraham, he passes it on like I'm, I could take this. I could pass it on to my son or pass it on. Jacob passes it on to Isaac. Isaac passes it on to Jacob. And Jacob is now going to, in, in essence, pass this same thing on to his 12 sons. And so, so what, But what he's doing with that blessing is he's, he's expanding the picture of it. Abraham is told you're going to possess this land. And at some point in his, in his life, he's shown the land. And then he's going to have many, many descendants, so numerous that you can't really count them. But that's not necessarily something tangible. It's not necessarily something that you can you can set up or explain other than just simply saying it. Here, Jacob is going to expand it a little bit to be very much more, uh, in, in a lot of ways, much more specific. He's going to give specifics about what is going to take place. This is what the blessing will mean in your life, in essence. And so he says, gather together and I'm going to tell you about this. I'm going to pass this on to you through the lens of, of the future. Verse 2, it says, Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might in the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because... You went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So Reuben is the firstborn uh, of Jacob's sons. He's the firstborn to Leah, who is the first child born to Jacob. I've said throughout our, our time with Joseph that Joseph, in so many different situations, there's so many different stories, is kind of, shown to be the most important son. And the most important son culturally is always the firstborn. But Joseph kind of gets special treatment because because Jacob loves Rachel, who is Joseph's mother, and Jacob hates Leah, who is Reuben's mother, who is the actual firstborn. And so Joseph and and Reuben kind of have their positions swapped, but only to a point. Joseph is he's going to be he's going to receive the love from his father. He's going to he's going to get this special coat, but then he goes away, right? He goes away, he has a life of his own, he rises to power all on his own, and he really doesn't need anything from his father. So perhaps 
in this period of time, Reuben kind of takes his maybe more culturally rightful place. But in chapter 35, which we talked about very briefly when we went through chapter 35, Reuben does something very, very foolish. He, he sleeps with his stepmom or one of his stepmoms. Rachel, she can't have any children. It's really bothering her. So she, so she gives her, her maidservant to, to Jacob to be a wife, to, to bear her children. And after she bears children, Reuben goes and he lays with his stepmom and, and tries to, in, in a lot of ways, tries to go around the, the family lineage. He's trying to go around Jacob is what most people think is happening there. And, and, and Jacob's like, that's not a good thing. You're going to lead the people of Israel as the firstborn, the, the position that you hold is you're going to, you're going to lead my, your brothers. You're going to be, the, you're going to be the, the head of the family once I die, is what Reuben is supposed to be. But we can't have somebody in this position that is as foolish as you've been. He says you're preeminent, preeminent in dignity and power. You should have been. But then he takes it away. He's unstable as water. You shall not have Preeminence. Preeminence is quite simply the, the first, the first choice, or the first picking, or or the maybe that maybe better put the first the first person that is able to to kind of step away. British crown. Anybody know anything about about the monarchy in Britain or whatever? You got Queen Elizabeth, who's the actual queen, and the next person in line is King, or is not King? It's Prince Charles, I think, is his son, right? He's preeminent in the throne, in the crown. He's the next in line, but he can also say, "I don't want to be king." And then it would go to the next person in line. He he would be he is preeminent in that position. And the same is with Reuben. Reuben, you should be the head of the of the family. You should now become the patriarch whenever I die, which will be at the end of this chapter. But you're not allowed to be anymore because you defiled my bed. You slept with one of my wives. But then he goes on. This doesn't, by the way, that doesn't sound very much like a blessing. And it's not really. And what, what actually takes place is we, as we follow through, we go past Deuteronomy, or we go, we go past the first five books of the Bible, past Genesis, and you got Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then you get to Judges, or Joshua, excuse me, Joshua, and then Judges. And, and, and the story of Joshua is largely about the people of Israel, 400 years in the future, or 400 plus years in the future, entering into the land of Canaan. And when they enter into the land of Canaan, they conquer all the peoples and they establish themselves in particular areas. Reuben, while wandering around in the desert, the tribe of Reuben says, you know what, we don't want land inside the land of Canaan or inside the promise. We want this land that's right on the outside of the Jordan. And Moses says, you can have it, but you've got go, you to go in, you've got to fight all the, all the people who live there so that your brothers or the brother tribes can, can gain their property. And so Reuben... Reuben, the man, is told that he's not going to have preeminence anymore. He's no longer going to be, he's no longer going to be important. And then Reuben, the tribe, they settle outside of the land of Canaan, and they almost entirely disappear. There's very little mention of Reuben, of the tribe of Reuben, as you travel through the rest of the Old Testament. Sure, Reuben does come and fight when they're supposed to, and they are technically part of the, 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 the tribes of Israel that become the nation of Israel, but they don't send any leaders. They don't have any judges. They really fade into the background. Then you have Simeon and Levi, verse 5. 
Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let them, uh, let my soul come not into their counsel, my glory be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their will, in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their thought, their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is a, it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So Leah has she has four sons, and then Bilhah has two sons, and then Zilpha has two sons, and then Rachel has, or and then Leah has two more sons, and then Rachel has two sons. Hope you followed that. I'm going to give you a test afterward. So Rachel, or Leah has Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. These are the four oldest sons of Jacob. Reuben has now been set aside to be the patriarch of the family, the head of the family. You can't be that because you slept with one of my wives. Simeon is next. Simeon and Levi in chapter 34. If you go back in chapter 34, we're not going to go there. But in, in chapter 34, their sister Dinah, who is the only mentioned daughter of Jacob, is in, in essence raped. And the story is kind of confusing and there's some oddities about it. And this, this guy Hammer or Hamar or however you want to say it, he, he, he sleeps with Dinah and, and, and it really... Man, it really makes Simeon and Levi upset, right? They find out about it, and then Hammer's like, you know what? I really want to marry this girl. And so they come to the family, and, and, the, and Simeon and Levi, they're like, okay, you can do that. But, but in order to do that, in order to be joined to us as families, in order for our families to be joined, you've got to become like us. So you all got to be circumcised. All the men of the house have to be circumcised. It says three days later, when all the men of the house who had been circumcised were really sore, Simeon and Levi came in and slaughtered everybody. The story escalates very quickly, right? This is not revenge. This is revenge on steroids. This is not an eye for an eye. This is now we are dominant. And this is exactly what Jacob picks up. He says, who's going to be, who's going to be in charge of my family? Whenever I die, who's going to be the next patriarch? Well, it can't be Simeon and Levi. They're out of their minds. Pretty much is what he says. He says, weapons of violence are their swords. What he means by that is, you, 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 know, you, can, you, have, you have a sword for two reasons. To defend yourself or to kill other people. Jacob's like, Simeon and Levi, you guys, are, you guys are killers. When you get angry, you're killers. And we can't have a killer in charge of my family because eventually you're going to come up against a foe that's bigger and badder than you, and you're going to die. And I want my family to die. So you can't be in charge either. So he sets them aside. Simeon, he, he receives an actual inheritance, a property of inheritance. But what's amazing is that almost immediately in the book of Judges, Simeon disappears. Yes, he does receive property, but, but pretty soon he's scattered. He can't hold his property, and he's scattered amongst his brothers almost to be unheard of again. And then Levi, Levi is, is chosen by God to be, the, to be the tribe that is set aside to be the people who lead the worship of God. They're the ones who travel around with the tabernacle. And, and once they settle into the land of Canaan, the Levites are divided amongst the peoples and they don't receive an actual inheritance of property. They only receive a part of their brother's inheritance. 
And so they're there simply to be the priests and the, and the preachers of the family. They're, exactly like Jacob says, scattered. They're divided and scattered. And then we come to Judah. Before we talk about, before we read Judah's little section here, Judah, Judah also has a story where he's kind of seen as a kind of a fool. He, he has three sons, or at least three of his sons are part of this story. And the first son marries this woman named Tamar, and, and then he dies. And the custom is you give the, the, the daughter the daughter-in-law to the next son so that he could have he could bear children for his brother to continue the family line. The next son's like, I don't like that. He spills the seed and then he's put to death by God. And then the third son, Judah, who is a little bit nervous now, two sons have died because of this. He's a little bit nervous. He says, no, I'm, I'm going to wait until my, my son's a little bit older. And pretty soon his son's a little bit older and he's not giving his third son to Tamar, who is in this culture worthless. I'm not, I mean, I'm not calling her worthless, but, but culturally speaking, she's not a virgin. And she can't have children, or she hasn't been able to have children. She's probably not going to be married off, which makes her, in, in, in a lot of ways, unvaluable. Again, this is not me. This is the culture. Pretty soon she tricks her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her by dressing like a prostitute. She gets pregnant, and then she confronts Judah. And Judah's like, oh, man, you're more righteous than I. If you're curious about the full story, you can go back into the story. It's I preached on it earlier. But it's really at that point that Judah seems to change. As we've been talking about Joseph, 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 he's he's a, he's kind of he's challenging his brothers and he's challenging his brothers. He's like, you're going to go home and Benjamin is going to stay here. And Judah's the one who stands up and he's like, no, we can't let this happen. And he defends his brothers. He's like, you can take me and send Benjamin home. He's changed. So Reuben is passed up. Simeon and Levi are passed up. But here we come. Here comes Judah who is thinking about the welfare of his brothers. And here's what Jacob has to say about that. It says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before me, before you. Excuse me. Judah is a lion's cub from, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter, meaning the, the thing you hold as king, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his fall to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestige in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Huh. Seems to be a much more positive thing being said here about Judah. Reuben, you're no longer preeminent. Simeon and Levi, I don't want my, I don't want my, my counsel to be attached to you. Get away, almost, is what Jacob says to his three oldest sons. But Judah, he's got much different language. Your brother shall praise you. You're going to be, you're going to be, you're going to be able to, to win battles over your enemies. You're going to have your hand on their neck. In verse 8, you're a lion's cub. You crouch like a lion or a lioness. 
I don't know about you, but I don't know if I would want to go up against a lion in the wilderness. You're going to be powerful. You're going to be strong, mighty. We know that that term kind of follows the people of Judah forever. Jesus is, is a lion. Is the lion of Judah. Then something interesting happens. He says, the scepter shall not depart from you. We know that later in, in 1 and 2 Samuel, we have the story of King David, who is the second king of the people of Israel. And, and David actually lives his life in pursuit of God. And at, at some point in David's life, God says to him, hey, look, your descendant will rule over the people forever. There will be a, one of your descendants, one of, one of your lineage, David, will sit on the throne. You know whose descendant David is? Judah's. Now this might not sound so shocking to us because we live so, so beyond all these things already happening, but, but for these people... These things starting to come into reality is really starting to set their feet on the ground that God's word isn't really passive. But it goes forward and he says, you're going you're gonna to hold this throne. You're going to be the ruler until tribute comes. This is interesting. Well, what is that tribute going to do? Well, he's going to be, he, he, to him shall the, be the obedience of, of the peoples. Now that's not the Israelites that he's talking about. He would have just said, My my descendants. He's this is the peoples. This is much broader. But this this tribute that's going to come after you, this this further descendant that will come from you, he's going to have the obedience of, of mankind. He's going to possess a greater throne, a bigger throne, and it it's going to make him extremely wealthy. A little we got to do a little interpretation here once we get to this. Next verse, verse 11 says, Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Now, grape juice isn't valuable in our culture, right? It's not, wine isn't, isn't a commodity and it doesn't really represent anything. If I have a lot of wine, nobody's going, Oh, he must be rich. In the ancient world, if you had a lot of wine, you were wealthy. You were, you were a valuable person and it was a, it was a literary symbolic picture of wealth. And so, so this, this tribute that's going to come, this descendant that's going to come after, he's going to be so wealthy that he's going to take his donkey and he's going to tie his donkey to the vine, to the grapevine. Now, if, if wine is valuable, if grape juice is valuable, and you tie a donkey to a vine, anybody ever seen a grapevine? They're not like trees. They're, they're vines. They're, they're, they're fragile. They can be broken. Probably very easily broken by a, a rope tied around a donkey's neck, tied around a vine. And if that donkey wanted to get out, all you'd do is just pull and break the vine and kill the, the vine. So, so, you're gonna, you're, so he's saying you're going to be so wealthy that the thing that, that is producing wealth or the, the symbol that's producing your wealth, you're going to tie your, your, your beast of burden to it and it, it's very potential it's going to break. But it's not just any old vine. It's not just the, the vine that's no longer producing. It's the choice vine. It's the most important vine. It's the one that produces the most. You're going to be so wealthy, you're not even going to be thinking about wealth. Hmm. Interesting. But I think that's only said to make this next point. You know, wash your garments in wine. That sound like a smart idea? That one threw me for a minute. We think of water 
as nothing. Right? You probably go to this. You, I, I can just about guarantee you that everybody's done this at some point in their life. They, they've bought a bottled water. They've forgotten about it in their car for a little while. Half drink. Still about half the water left in there. And it's boiling hot in your in your cup holder. And, it, and, and you drink it. And the next time it tastes a little bit like plastic. You're like, I don't know if that's healthy. And so you throw it away. You throw away clean water, and you don't even think about it. You go to a third world country, water, or the pursuit of water, becomes massively important. We live in a culture that has water everywhere. There's water right there in a big jug. You can go to any any public building, almost any public building in, in the entire United States, and there's going to be a drinking fountain that just spurts water out, and half of it goes just down the drain, never to be thought of again. Because we have treatment plants, and we have methods of cleaning the water, but in, in, a, in a third world country, or in the ancient world, you went to a stream, and that stream had mud in it, and it was dirty. There are very few places that you could go to find good, clean water. So water was important. Water was valuable. Water was something that you clean. You didn't clean your clothes and clean water. Clean water is for drinking because if you don't have enough clean water, you're going to be dehydrated and you're going to die. Or your animals are going to die. No, so you clean your clothes in a dirty creek. Now remember, wine is a symbol of wealth. You're going to clean your clothes in wine. Now, it's not silly because you don't clean your clothes in wine because if you've spilled grape juice on yourself or wine on yourself, you know that that's a stain. You don't want that stain on there. That's not the point. The point is the wealth. You clean your clothes in something extremely valuable, thereby making that valuable substance no longer valuable because nobody wants to drink wine that has cleaned your clothes. But none of this is really all that great. What's really great is when you go to the New Testament, Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus in the New Testament's first miracle is recorded in the book of John. It's called the Wedding of Cana. Jesus, he's, he's at this wedding. He's brought his 12 buddies with him, which is probably not what was supposed to happen. And they run out of wine. Now, it's likely that they run out of wine because Jesus brought... 12 extra men with him that are probably drinking wine. So it's probably Jesus' fault that they run out of wine. It's not the point. It's a sidebar. Mary comes to him and hey, they ran out of wine. Jesus is like, what does that have to do with me? She's like, just do whatever he says to the servants. Do whatever he says. He says, bring me those jugs of water. You know what that, those jugs of water contained? Cleaning water. Jesus fulfills this prophecy at the wedding of Cana. He says, bring me the water that we clean stuff in, and I'm going to turn it to wine. The descendant that's going to come after Judah, he's going to be, he's going to be able to clean water. He's going to clean his garments in wine. Now it's a little bit backwards, but I think you get the point. Verse 12, his eyes are darker than wine. I, don't, I, don't, I had no idea. I'm sure there's something. His teeth are whiter than milk. Uh, toothpaste in the ancient world isn't 99 cents a bottle. So if you have clean teeth, probably means you're wealthy. I 
No, Judah's important. Actually, I think more important than Judah is Judah's descendant is important. This lion cub is important. He's the one who receives the majority of what has been said so far. And now we can keep going in verse 13. Zebulun. Now we know that there's a little bit of a shift here because Reuben is the firstborn, Simeon second, Levi third, Levi third Judah fourth, Zebulun tenth. He's going out of order just to throw us off. Zebulun is tenth. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea, shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at, this, at Sidon. Last week I said that, that, that uh, Manasseh and Ephraim, they receive a particular mountain. I said I think this is the only particular piece of land that was given. Reuben, or not Reuben, Zebulun and Issachar, they receive kind of instructions about what kind of land they're going to have. You're going you're gonna to dwell by the sea. You're going to be important. The sea-dwelling uh, town is going to be wealthy. It's going to have trade going through it. And, and Zebulun, where they... Where they settle is just a little bit off the shore, but there's still a seaport. And so they become wealthy. They inherit this land in the book of, of Joshua. Issachar, verse 14, is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that the resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Issachar, they come into the land and they're supposed to receive this particular plot. And they realize this particular plot isn't very fertile. And so instead of dwelling in the place that they actually receive, they dwell with their brothers as servants. Sounds a lot like what's going on here. Dan, verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. During the judges, during the book of Judges, Dan becomes prominent. Once Saul becomes king, and once David unites the kingdoms, Dan again almost disappears. But during the time of the judges, just exactly like he says, Dan shall judge his peoples. And one of the, one of the descendants of Dan is Samson. Verse 17, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider falls backward. And then Jacob says this, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Samson is not a good character. He breaks every rule. He doesn't bring the people together. The only thing he really does is kill a lot of Philistines, which makes the Philistines angry. He bites the heel of the horse. He's a viper. Can you imagine if a viper was in the middle here? You know what kind of chaos would happen? That's the picture that Jacob is painting for us. And, and it almost seems like Jacob is experiencing this because he says, I wait for salvation, O Lord. It's like, it's like he's watching Samson be a crazy snake. And then all of a sudden he goes, well, I, I will wait for your salvation, God. I think he gives us a little bit of validity. Raiders shall raid Gad, verse 19, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. He's a family cook, apparently. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Everything that we see in this blessing, besides the very far in the future uh, Jesus references, happens in the books of, of Joshua and Judges. 
All of it. So much so that many scholars are like, well, this couldn't have been actually Jacob saying this. It must have been stuff that happened that they, that they post-dated to Jacob. Yeah, God's bigger than that, isn't he? And then we get to Joseph. And Judah had a lot written about him. Joseph has a little bit more. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a, by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attack him, shoot at him, and harass him severely. Doesn't that sound like his life? Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. That's God. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the, by the God of your father, who will help you. By the Almighty, who will bless you. The blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breast and the womb and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph. And on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Hold that for just one, one thought. And then we have Benjamin in verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous, ravenous wolf in the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. In the book of Judges, Benjamin becomes the uh, uh, auxiliary enforcer warrior army. Instead of the Benjaminites, that they can sling a stone so accurately that they can cut the hair of the head of their enemies. Ravening, ravenous wolves. The other thing that kind of gets fulfilled by that is as ravenous wolves, at the end of the book of Judges, the, the, the Benjaminites really, they really make, they mess things up. But Joseph, what's unique about Joseph is that it doesn't seem like Jacob is talking about much about the future. It seems like he kind of fixates his attention upon Joseph. There are, there are, there are threads that run through the book of Genesis. From the start to the finish. And there's, there's, there's themes that go from Genesis all through Revelation. One of those, one of those themes is that, is that, as Paul puts it, if God is for us, who can be against us? Joseph had a lot of people against him, right? Joseph has, has his brothers. Ten brothers who hated him so much that they were going to kill him. Then, no, we're not going to kill him. We're just going to leave him in this pit to starve to death. No, instead of that, how about we sell him into slavery? Does that those sound like enemies? People in opposition to, Jake, to Joseph? Excuse me. What about, what about Potiphar's wife? Jake, jo, Joseph goes to Potiphar's house. He becomes, he becomes important. Why does he become important? Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph. And then here comes Potiphar's wife, and she's, she wants to be with Joseph because he's apparently really attractive. And so she lies and gets him thrown into jail. Sound like an enemy? But then Joseph rises to power in the prison. Why? Because the prison guard saw that the Lord was with Joseph. And then here come the baker and the cupbearer, and they have these dreams told that Joseph interprets them, and they're like, oh, we'll, we'll tell Pharaoh about your wrongful your wrongful imprisonment. And what happens, they go to they go and they, they forget about him. Almost seems like there's an enemy. Pretty soon, Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh comes. Like, hey, 
There's a guy in prison. He can interpret your dream. Bring him in. He interprets the dreams. And what does Joseph, what does, what does Pharaoh realize? God is with Joseph. Who, 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 if, if God is for you, who can be against you? This is a theme that runs through the book of Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, his brothers, all make horrible mistakes. They all have enemies. They all have people trying to take their lives. And you know what happens? God's plan persists. Today, you and I, we have lives, right? Lives that at time are nice. Doesn't seem like there's much going on. It seems like people around us maybe even see that the Lord is with us. And there are other times when it's pretty much everyone around me is my enemy. You know what we hold to? I said this last week. I'll say it again because I think it bears repeating. If God is for you, who can be against you? God has called you. He has led you. He draws you. He moves you. He's got a plan for your life. We take these stories that we hear about Joseph. We take these stories that we hear about Moses. We take these stories that we read in the Old Testament and we place our feet firmly on the ground that God's word is not passive. But you know what else God said? You know what other theme runs through the Bible? In particular, the book of Genesis? A tribute comes. People will be obedient to him. He will be wealthy, powerful. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have sinned and they've, they've separated themselves from God. God says, hey, hey Eve, you're going to have pain in childbearing. Adam, you're going to have pain in, in the toil on the ground. But you know what's, gonna, you know what's amazing? There's going to be one of your descendants will come after you and he will crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, you read one of my favorite verses in the book of Genesis. That every intention of the thoughts of man was only evil continually. Man really messed up. You know what God does? He sends Noah blueprints to a boat, an ark, redemption. And then, you know, what happens is they come off the boat and Noah makes some mistakes and then pretty soon got the Tower of Babel and they're trying to, they're trying to become God and, they're, and, 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 and God says, let me take a different tactic. And he calls Abraham. He says, Abraham, here, come with me. You're going to be, you're going to be the next part of the puzzle. He says, you're going to, you're going to have descendants. You're going to have land. And one of your descendants is going to bless the world. Judah. Judah, yeah, you've made mistakes. You're really kind of foolish at times, but, but it seems like you've turned your heart towards me. And you know what? A descendant's going to come through you. He's going to come to this earth. He's going to turn water into wine. He's going to heal people who are sick. He's going to teach things that nobody else had ever taught. And he's going to die on the cross for you and me. You know what? You know, you know how we know that God is going to bring back his word. He's going to bring his word into reality. Because we see it on the cross. Jesus suffered and died. He became the tribute. 
so that we might be God's children. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for these stories, these these proofs, these evidences that you show us through the 12 sons. Reuben doesn't receive preeminence. Simeon and Levi are scattered. Issachar receives his land but goes to be a servant. All of these things came into reality because your word is not passive. Your word is not something that just simply was said and forgotten about, but it's something that is real and solid. Something that we take, we hold, we possess. But as you show us your hand at work in Joseph's life, we again are confirmed. If you are for us, who can be against us? No one. Not our brothers, not our families, not the world, not enemies. Not even ourselves. We thank you that you sent your son through the lineage of Judah. We thank you that the truth of your being with us is the truth of your son Jesus on the cross. In the most powerful and and real way, you sent your son to exemplify what it really means for you to be for us. Or teach us that into our hearts. Impress upon that truth into, into who we are. Let it radiate to every fiber of our beings. Let us, let us hold to this with confidence. Let us move through our lives as if you spoke those words audibly into our ears. That I sent my son Jesus so that you would be mine. But it's only in his name that we pray.